Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, Today, we are turning our sights to U.S.-German relations. Uh, On July 15th, President Joe Biden is hosting Chancellor Angela Merkel in Washington for what will likely be her farewell visit to the United States after almost 16 years as chancellor. Um, Biden and Merkel are reportedly set to discuss their commitment to cooperation on a range of challenges, ending COVID-19, addressing the threat of climate change, promoting economic prosperity and international security based on the shared democratic values. Uh, And while we are all so happy that Trump's days are behind us and his abusive approach to the U.S.-Germany relationship, it's not all smooth sailing. And there is, of course, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, questions about burden sharing and some other lingering issues in the relationship. And so today we are really uh, excited to welcome both Catherine Kluver and Jeff Rathke to the podcast to discuss both the upcoming Merkel visit, but also US-Germany relations and more. So welcome both. Uh, Welcome, Jeff. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for having us. Great to be with you. Just as a quick way of introduction for both of our guests, uh, Catherine Kluver is the very new director and CEO of the German Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, She was previously the executive director of the Future of Diplomacy Project and the Project on Europe and the Transatlantic Transatlantic Relationship at Harvard Kennedy School's Belfer Center. And Jeff is president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at the Johns Hopkins University in Washington, D.C., And prior to joining AICGS, Jeff was a senior fellow and deputy director of the Europe program at CSIS. So two uh, fantastic guests on this topic. And as we always like to do, maybe just starting really big and broad, um, a question to both of you is just how you would talk about, um, describe the context in which the Biden-Merkel visit is taking place in. Kind of what's the background, what's the backdrop What's the, as Jim always says, the mood music that's happening behind this visit? Uh, How would you describe it? And Catherine, we can start with you. Well, this is the legacy visit, right? This is the visit that is just ripe with symbolic politics. Um, You know, in German, we would call it a boy politik. It is, you know, because effectively, as you mentioned, Andrea, she is heading toward the end of, I think, what will end up numerically being the longest chancellorship uh, in German history, because we always know that after an election, it takes a while for German government to get its quote unquote act together and form a coalition. So I think she'll probably outlive Helmut Kohl by, you know, an odd number of two weeks. But, you know, there are important symbol, uh, symbolic stakes to put into the ground. You mentioned uh, the way that Donald Trump really put a bullseye, not only on the country of Germany, but specifically on this chancellor. And that so many of his semantic and also political attacks and then the policies that flowed from there, um, think of the steel tariffs, think, of course, of Nord Stream 2, think of the abrogation of the multilateral architecture that has made Germany the success story that it is effectively. Um, and I'm not thinking of beyond uh, World War II, but really, you know, after the financial crisis. I mean, look at how Germany in the end uh, came out of the financial crisis in, in, in 08 and 09. And it did that because that multilateral structure uh, protects Germany. 
And so I think all of those, those components were, um, were really at stake in the German-American relationship under Trump. And now, you know, we just, I was just in Berlin last week and there was, a, there was resonance for uh, the Secretary of State saying Germany is the best friend we need in the world. And so this is to cement that best friend relationship. Uh, she can't be seen to be campaigning for her successor. There are issues, there are legacy issues that she will want to talk about. You mentioned Nord Stream 2, that will be critical. Uh, I do think that that's a, a component of the uh, political process. But above all, it is cementing um, the president's narrative around democracy and the importance of powerful, and I say this financially powerful democracies who will have to make that program work for the transatlantic relationship to be seen as sticking together. Uh, it will link, I think, semantically nicely to the comments she made uh, in Congress and in the Rose Garden speech in 09 and 11. So there will be a lot of that tone in any of the public pronouncements. So there will be a lot of symbolic politics, but they are that symbolic politics after the Trump era is necessary. Both sides of this relationship need it. Uh, and so that's not without value, even though I'm a little more skeptical that we'll do a lot on substance simply because, you know, in real, real terms, she is a lame duck chancellor at this point. Jeff, anything you want to add? Well, uh, thanks. Thanks so much. And uh, I, Catherine has hit so many uh, points so well. Um, maybe just uh, let me add a, f a few thoughts. Uh, the mood music, which is where you started, uh, uh, Andrea. Um, you know, we've, of course, seen this change in the tonality of the U.S. relationship with Europe. That's been remarkable. It is not just a change of tone. There's a change in the policy orientation, which we see uh, coming from the Biden administration. And if you look at the recent summits, the U.S.-European Union, summit the G7 and NATO summits you see uh, you know a lot of a lot of changes in the substantive direction um, and and it's absolutely correct that when you look at Tony Blinken's visit to Berlin and the way he described so warmly the relationship uh, between the United States and Germany um, that there is is something really uh, significant and new afoot but uh, I think it's also important to remember that the Biden administration is interested in results. Uh, you know, the the restoration of transatlantic comity uh, is not uh, a goal in itself. It is it is a uh, step on the way to accomplishing the very ambitious objectives that the Biden administration has laid out, and so that is going to underlay. Uh, all of the discussions that happen for the next few weeks uh, and months that Merkel remains in office, but even more uh, clearly beyond that when a new government takes shape. And that's, I think, where we have kind of a mismatch of timelines that uh, causes some, some challenges uh, because uh, Merkel will be in office probably through the end of this calendar year, give or take. Uh, I think Catherine's absolutely right about that. Um, and the, but there, there are also the longer term issues in how the United States and Germany cooperate that uh, is connected not only to 
the economic recovery after the COVID pandemic uh, and to defense, uh, the defense relationship, also to questions that relate to China, which I'm sure we will get into. And, and so those are also an important area where Merkel can make contributions on this visit, um, but they'll have to be carried out by the next uh, government. And, and then um, uh, lastly, of course, there's an electoral context. Uh, Catherine was uh, totally right that Merkel can't really be here campaigning uh, for her successor. Uh, in fact, she's really stayed out of the um, uh, electioneering thus far. Um, but of course, that hangs over everything because we don't know what kind of a coalition we're going to get um, after this uh, election on September 26th. And the you know, the balances in the opinion polls are changing. So that's going to remain interesting, even as we look to July 15th and Merkel's visit, but also beyond. Just as a two finger to that, I think it's useful to point out the context that is likely not making headlines. Uh, in early July, of course, the finance minister, uh, is who is the vice chancellor right now, was also running uh, to replace uh, the longest serving chancellor in the nation, Olaf Scholz, put in a five-day visit, uh, met with Janet Yellen. I mean, in terms of getting things done, let's look at the personnel that will stick around. Olaf Scholz will likely be in the opposition, but will stick around and still have a hand in shaping uh, a narrative around uh, critical issues in German policy that will affect foreign policy issues. So, you know, whether that was smart sequencing by the Biden administration, that there's other senior personnel coming, I know for a fact that you know, large chunks of the Bundestag, particularly the transatlantic experts, are also in town around this first two-week period in July because the Bundestag just wrapped its last session. And uh, I spoke to a couple of them last week who were all excited to come back to Washington for personal and professional reasons. So, you know, in an ideal circumstance, and Andre, you mentioned I ran a program on diplomacy, one would wish. Uh, that the Biden administration, our colleagues in the NSC, uh, did this on purpose, meaning to say there's a sequencing of invitations and there's smart diplomacy going on in the background to get exactly to what Jeff pointed out, which is to say time will move on, uh, even if a German uh, electoral uh, campaign will focus on sort of navel gazing issues over the next 100 days toward this election. Time will march on mercilessly, and these issues that are critical for the global environs will march on too. And so uh, if the Biden administration is in fact uh, really focused on putting into practice what we agreed at the EU-US summit, then they'll need other personnel flanking this lame duck chancellor to, to push that agenda. Yeah, uh, that's that, that's right. Uh, Olaf Scholz, uh, of course, the one of the big deliverables of his visit was the agreement in the OECD uh, on a kind of global minimum taxation, uh, corporate taxation um, level, um, and and so that is a big uh, a big achievement. Still has to be turned into law in the United States, um, uh, but still a, a major multilateral uh, push. We also had visits by the economics minister Peter Altmaier last week to Washington, and this week we had the defense minister uh, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer in in D.C. as well. Lesser noticed, perhaps, but also significant, the chief of the German Air Force, uh, Lieutenant General Gerhardt, was in Washington early this week, along with one of the leading green politicians on of uh, defense issues, Tobias Lindner, um, and and so those are all factors. Uh, that you know we we see as Catherine described a um, you know an intensification of 
the German diplomatic engagement with the United States, and that has something to do with the election, but it also reaches well beyond it because we will be in a post-Merkel era um, uh, fairly soon. Those are great interventions. I, I've just, uh, this has been a great opening to this show. Thank you all very much. But let's do drill down a bit into the substance, uh, understanding that there, the caveats like uh, that uh, Merkel is a, she's a lame duck. Uh, a lot of, a lot of this is, is going to be more symbolic than substance, but let's talk about the, the Biden talking points. Jeff, you and I have written many talking points in our lives. Uh, and so, you know, not, not necessarily talking points that, that, that talk about this is an issue, this is an issue, this is an issue, but that drill down in those issues. So what is it going to be in the Biden team talking points on Nord Stream 2 or on some of these other issues that we all know about? Um, what is the point that we want to make sure that um, not just the miracle, but her team sitting there, those that are going to be part of the, the governmental apparatus that have been coming in and out of town, what is it that we want them to know that to take away back to Berlin on Nord Stream 2, for instance, or on some other issues in terms of the substance? What would you say would be in the talking points, Jeff, that we would be writing? Mm-hmm. Not, not, the, not the fluff, the, the, the main point. Sure. Um, so if, if we look at uh, Nord Stream 2, uh, th- that's a great example of an issue that is a serious issue and one on which there are still very strong opinions uh, in the United States and and in Washington, they are almost you know uniformly negative. Uh, this was one of the top two or three issues on the German American agenda during the Trump administration. Um, the The Biden administration has tried to put it in a different context. Um, they have waived uh, the application of sanctions against certain. Uh, um, companies and individuals involved with the project that has generated a lot of backlash with, from Congress uh, in among Republicans and also among Democrats. And I think that's something that um, uh, you know, the German side needs to take into account because the Congress has uh, certain powers, whether it is how quickly nominees get confirmed in the Senate. Um, uh, uh, to perhaps passing new sanctions legislation, um, you know this is this is a, a source of pressure on the Biden administration that may not always be fully appreciated um, uh, in, in in Germany uh, when they look at this. It's not just an executive branch issue. Um, but if you look at what the Biden administration is doing, they they're opposed to Nord Stream two, but I think they've realized that uh, fighting um, tooth and nail to stop this project from being completed. Um, is is not the best use of their energies and time. And so I think the the United States um, intent, and I think it's uh, the, the right one, is to achieve a greater degree of shared vision about policy toward Russia. Um, uh, and then if you get that, if you uh, th- then you can put Nord Stream 2 in a context and you can have other instruments available to deal with, um, Russia's destabilizing activities uh, in Europe, um, around the European periphery, um, and more generally uh, on a on a on a, an international scale. So I think where the United what the United States um, you know needs is some German partnership in helping solve this problem. We see some indications, for example, that the the 
you know, if you listen to the three German chancellor candidates who did a public uh, discussion last weekend, uh, they talked about this. And there was one thing that brought them together. They weren't all opponents of the uh, project. O only Annalena Baerbock, the Green Party, opposes North Stream 2 clearly. Um, but the other two said, you know, Ukraine is important. And if Russia were to interfere with gas transit um, uh, through Ukraine, that would change the circumstances um, uh, politically for Germany. So that I think is a, a, an evolution um, that maybe points the way to how this situation can be managed. Um, what commitments is Germany willing to undertake um, so that those are not just empty uh, words, uh, but that actually constitute a new circumstance that Vladimir Putin has to take into consideration. Mm. I would, yeah, I, I would let me insert yeah. just a little bit into, and you can you can build on yeah. what he said. But the question is, I mean, I want to pick up on that point that Jeff was talking about: is to what extent do you think it actually um, has sunken in in Berlin about just how hard it has been for the Biden administration to create the space for discussions on Nord Stream Two? So Jeff is, you know, obviously absolutely right about how much backlash and how much criticism that there has been. And I think there's only a certain amount of time that the Biden administration can really keep the critics at bay. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, their goal and their vision was that they would create this space for negotiations. But now the ball is in Berlin's court to step up and actually deliver on, you know, a set of actions that would mitigate all of the negative implications of Nord Stream 2. How how much do you think that's really sunken in? And I know Jeff just said that you know there was discussion that it you know the 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 candidates for chancellor said that if Russia you know messed with the um, oil uh, the oil flowing through pipelines in Ukraine that that might change the calculus. But how you know I guess I would would be skeptical of that just because even after you know the failed assassination attempt against Navalny there were some maybe saying well that will be the factor that gets the Germans to take Russia more seriously and it didn't then we had the military build up again on Ukraine that didn't change anything like what would it actually take um, to get a future German chancellor to pull the plug on Nord Stream 2 and to adopt this, you know, more um, a harder line on Russia that Jeff is, is talking about? Well, the practical answer is if they were to pull the plug on Nord Stream 2, they need to figure out how to finance and compensate all the German companies and subsidiaries uh, who are invested in this because then German law is relatively uh, straightforward and explicit. And so what is part of the reticence if you have the German finance minister who is you know, classically from an opposition party but has been in a grand coalition with this chancellor, uh, for decades, and then a conservative politician who has to ride the political mainstream on this stage that the Munich Security Conference put together uh, for them last weekend, you know, they're going to toe that line because they are so personally involved in this. Now, who has perceived this nuanced change in the diplomatic channels? Everybody in the Bundestag and both of the leading of the parties that form the central coalition are very aware because the tide within the party political spectrum, even of the ruling coalition currently in its current composition has really shifted, right? So people who are against completing this project uh, have become much more vociferous within the ruling coalition. What will it take for there to be a sort of a, a, a drastic shift, an election, 
Um, and, you know, either a, a Green Party uh, candidate sitting in the foreign ministry um, or sitting in the, the seat of the chancellor, in part, and this gets to your uh, Navalny uh, point, Andrea, um, because their, their view of international policy or foreign policy is to have humanitarian or, or human rights driven foreign policy, rather. And so, you know, the, the Casa Navalny and everything uh, that, that uh, sort of comes from that, the whole, you know, in French we say décalage, the whole run of, of, of infringements that Russia has put on the table that all have a human rights dimension lead uh, the, the Green Party political program when it comes to Russia. Um, what I think this chancellor is actually going to the U.S. president for is because she also understands this is a legacy item now, right? This is this is a real sticky problematic. I mean, she needs to effectively get this resolved. And Germans have been playing ball in terms of stressing the need for a diplomatic solution. She sent her two closest advisors, the economic and the political advisors, to Washington probably six weeks ago that sort of say, okay, we're, you know, we're, we're really vested in trying to figure out a practical way that this could work. And many of us have written um, about, you know, different, even if the pipeline came online, what would be the short stops and how could this work? Many of us have written about how that might actually function. Um, but the wider thing is, I think Jeff is exactly right here, is how do we embed this in a different relationship with um, Russia? And here, you know, she had an extremely difficult time with Emmanuel Macron using the same language that the president used to sell to a domestic audience why he needed to sit down uh, in this four eyes format with, with Putin in Geneva, and it did not play. It did not play with the European Council, and it did not play with key parts of her own public. And so I think part of what she will turn around to President Biden and say, how do I, what do I do here? Because clearly there's a need to follow up in the same way that you sort of put um, the American leadership forward. We have to get to that same like level of sober-minded, interest-driven, but forceful discussion. We can't have a replay of the Josep Borrell incident from a couple of months ago where European foreign policy in the form of, uh, you know, the, the representative of European foreign policy was completely declassed. So it has to be leader's business. And effectively, you know, Emmanuel Macron and I would be the best person to do it. Um, Merkel has been I think the strongest single figure on Russia for that extended period of time. But I think after, after what happened in Brussels, she's not entirely sure how to take this forward. Uh, and I think that's, she's, you know, when all the, when the gloves come off, she's looking for some advice or some um, meeting of the minds in terms of how she might sell that back, not only to her electorate, but also to everyone represented in the European Council. That's really helpful. I, I mean, so, I think the, the one question I have is you made really a good point about the Greens and obviously with the human rights focused democracy that would most likely translate into a stronger line on Russia. But if it's Armin Laschet, then what do, what do you both see as prospects for a more, I think you said sober minded approach to Russia, Catherine? Um, is there a prospect, do you think that, that, um, that we could see in a post Merkel era, a harder line if it's not the Greens? 
it will be more difficult um, if it ends up being a variant coalition. So the other two coalition compositions that are currently being played through and uh, be patient here as I talk about color magic um, is some version <laughs> of a coalition they call Jamaica which would be, um, that would involve the Greens in fact, but would also bring in the, the Liberal Party. Um, and then that could kind of uh, take on an odd uh, spin on Russia that wouldn't be as hardlined or uh, discreet, uh, would make things very difficult for the Greens. Um, then there's one version that sort of keeps the Greens entirely out of the fray, uh, which is what they're now calling a Germany coalition. So black is the color of the conservatives, yellow is the uh, um, color of the liberal, uh, economically liberal-minded Free Democrat Party. And red is the Social Democratic Party. And you know, this goes back to long traditions in party history. The Social Democrats uh, are very uh, have different appropriations now of the of what Willy Brandt's Ostpolitik, um, you know, sort of arrangements with Russia and the East mean in modern times. Schultz has been very clear that he wants to have a much harder line against Russia, but I'm not sure his party will uh, follow him necessarily. Um, so that, that would be very difficult. Um, but in anything that the Greens will be involved in, they have said very clearly, we need an entirely new um, layout toward Russia. We need much stronger you know, ideas of what, how, what sanctions work and how, how they need to be conceptualized, that there's a big uh, issue there for the transatlantic partnership to figure out, right? What, how, do, how do we really put flesh on expanding McNitsky style sanctions and how can we prove to our electorate that they have effectiveness, et cetera. They're willing to play hardball, um, but not, of course, you know, it's still fully in the recognition that on a number of key issues, you're going to have to engage Russia. So there's, it, it's also an interesting, and we don't have time for this sort of evolution of how the Green Party has come to this conclusion. Um, but you know, I think those are clearly the, the, the markers to watch or the nuances to watch because of course, conversely, the expectation of the Biden administration will be, will have to be given the domestic agenda that the Biden administration has to turn itself to, that Europe continue to be able to keep its house in order, both in terms of the incursions from what we might refer to as the Eastern flank and the problems that are arising from the European South. If I could just add one thought to that. And I think, you know, Armin Laschet has been minister president of the largest state in Germany for several years. He was a member of the European Parliament before that. And so he has a fairly long um, record on the international stage. Um, uh, but I think that I think it's hard to extrapolate from positions he's taken in the past to predict uh, what he would do, for example, with respect to Russia, uh, if he were chancellor. But what I do think you can um, extrapolate from is his, uh, his style and method. Um, and he is uh, a politician who is you know, very good at bringing about consensus. He is not an ideologue in any sense of the word. Um, in that sense, he has a little bit in common with Merkel, um, who is mostly you know, a, a moderate pragmatist rather than you know, a, uh, a, you know, standing on principle all the time. Um, and so I think that for, for Laschet, he has a historical closeness to France, not just because of the geography of North Rhine-Westphalia, but because he's had uh, kind of a, he's played a role um, in certain international issues with France. Um, 
but at the same time, he will recognize the import the the value, the German interest in keeping Europe together, which means the Central and Eastern European countries as well. That was the big failure of this Merkel Macron um, uh, idea recently. It wasn't, and I don't think it's because the you know Central and Eastern Europeans don't trust Merkel. I think it's more, it's more that they don't trust Macron, um, and uh, and that I think was the big reason for this you know poorly prepared. Uh, a diplomatic um, uh, failure. But, uh, and I think Laschet will, uh, whatever he has said in the past about Russia, I think he is going to think European in the sense of how do I keep the European Union member states together um, and and move forward? Well, let me, let me ask you all, uh, you know, the, the, dis- the discussion on um, Nord Stream was very helpful and particularly how it plays in Washington and uh, making sure that Berlin understands that the play in Washington is, it's pretty complicated, but there's another issue too that's important in Washington. And so my question for you all is when uh, Merkel gets on the plane to fly back to Berlin and she and her team are on the plane and they're, they're taking off and now uh, all of the uh, talking heads and think tankers and folks in Washington will be picking apart the visit, you know, and so, you know, what was achieved, what was the symbol here, but what was the substance, what was achieved? Let me ask you about the one of the questions that they certainly will be looking at in, in the, here in Washington uh, and, and, and taking apart, and that is burden sharing. And in a sense, this is a boring topic because it's always there, the, the 2%, you know, okay. But I think whether we like it or not, uh, all the talking heads, all of us, we're gonna be getting phone calls from the press. They're all gonna ask about burden sharing. And so my question for you two is, you know, given again the caveats that Merkel is 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 a lame duck, and there's not a lot that that that's going to happen on this. What do you think will come out on this, if anything, in terms of burden sharing? When CNN and others are going to ask the administration officials, so what did you get out of Merkel in terms of burden sharing? Are they going to meet the two percent? What do you think? Number one, the Biden team will say to the Germans, not just you got to pay your 2%. Are they going to offer another approach on burden sharing that is not just related to spending money, but widening the aperture on what counts when it comes to burden sharing, uh, and which will be different. If they do that, that'll be different than anything else that we've seen. It's not just that the money and it's not doing it with a fist you know, but saying, you know, hey, let's talk about burden sharing and let's redefine it. Do you think the Biden administration will put that on the table, number one? And then number two, in terms of the Merkel response or the German response, um, do you think they're going to come up with a response to the administration that the administration will later at a press conference be able to say, we, we, we did raise burden sharing with the Germans and this is what we've heard. Uh, not just the pledge that we will try to make what we agreed to in Wales, but in fact, the Germans have come to us and they, they have come up with other ways in which we can talk about burden sharing. So bottom line here, as we all pick apart the trip once she's gone, is there some good news or some, something new to talk about uh, on this very boring but very important topic of burden sharing? I think the good news is we're already doing it, right? The NATO summit was the entire, that was the entire tone. Um, both the president and the secretary of state have carried that water is, is to take 
even the semantics of the burden sharing into the capacity building narrative, right? I do think, and that in fact helps all of the candidates, all the serious candidates running uh, uh, for public office, uh, running to replace Angela Merkel. Annalena Baerbock has very, so they've all effectively made lip service um, uh, uh, commitments to the 2% goal, but the real crux in the German context, and I, you know, I commend to all listeners who are hopping on this call, uh, but didn't uh, listen to the call with my, or listen to the uh, podcast with my excellent colleague Christian Mölling and Claudia Mayo. The, the 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 crux of the matter is the German defense forces, the German army, and Annalena Baerbock does not tie, Baerbock does not tire to point out that we're closer than ever to the two percent goal because of uh, the the fiscal constraints um, that uh, COVID put on 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 our backs. Which is to say, um, you know, was that ever really a number that you know what what really where the rubber really meets the road is? Are we capable of you know, A, mustering the forces, B, having the forces be compatible, C, achieving both, um, you know, the, the physical land protection. And again, this is the, you know, these are the weapons that the Russians are more afraid of than anything else, meaning to say, like, what's, what's our, what's our, uh, what's our uh, uh, defense shield like? Is it modern? Does it work? Is it functional? Is it based in the right way? What happens with enhanced forward presence? Are we going to make those troops functional and permanent, et cetera, et cetera? That all needs to work. And right. right now, and that's why I think it's important that Jeff pointed out uh, that uh, AKK, Annegret Kamp-Karrenbauer, um, is in this visit mix, uh, and she's going to be at the DGAP next week, so shameless plug. Um, you know, that, that that's important because that personnel in some way, shape, or form might very well continue. And so it's to get into German public minds. And again, this is where with nuances, all three candidates are sort of saying the same thing. The Bundeswehr, the German uh, uh, army needs to be severely and quickly upgraded. There are nuances of the debate around drones and how we do that and modern weapon systems. And, you know, is there any room in the German discussion to think about hypersonics, et cetera. But I see all this and already semantically, and again, this gets to the art of diplomacy and how you sequence this kind of thing. And in the German context, um, you're going to have to re-up something that Volker Rühr, the former defense secretary, introduced in the 90s when the German uh, constitution was changed to allow out-of-area missions, which is what he called salami tactics, which right. is to say in very thin, delicate um, slices, uh, customizing the Germans to the fact that A, not only is this needed, because this is frankly a public embarrassment, and it's a continuous embarrassment, right? We don't have to um, enumerate all the <laughs> ways in which German um, uh, uh, material gets stuck in the sand somewhere. Um, and secondly, um, you know, it's a, it's a critical necessity to, to put Germany on the map with with all of these sort of moving pieces and the and the the push factors from the outside becoming uh, more drastic and this you know I think the Germans are happier to think about hybrid and other integrated threats because it doesn't evoke these images of you know German Panzers rolling down the down the street so I do think that shifting the narrative in the context of NATO the new strategic concept um, the Biden administration leaning into this idea of capacity building all three German candidates being able to pick up that narrative. Again, none of this is new. Sigmar Gabriel, the former German foreign minister, has been, say, has been saying this for 10 or 15 years, but it needs to resurface in that way. But then to have, you know, the current finance minister who will never be chancellor, but, you know, who's running for a chancellery to say, we understand that and we know it's going to cost money and we're going to put that money in. 
So a repackaging of that is I think right now the only practical thing that you can really do. And there the Americans are helping. Right. Excellent. If, if, I, could, if I could add, um, I think there are two things that are probably essential um, to, you know, to, to put Germany's defense and security commitments in a, in a proper context. Uh, Jim, you, the way you put it was, you know, what is it we're going to look at after this visit is over? Um, and I think, I think there are two things that after the visit, but also looking ahead are going to be crucial. One is that Germany's defense budget continues to increase. 2% uh, of GDP uh, for Germany would be an enormous amount of money uh, that would take a long time to get there. And, and maybe Germany will. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's not out of the question, but it will take a while. Um, but as long as the, the numbers keep increasing, I think there is a, you know, a, a strong case to be made that Germany is meeting its responsibilities. I mean, you know, if you look at the numbers right now, if you take NATO's data, uh, the way NATO compiles the data, Germany has the largest um, uh, budget, uh, defense budget within the within the EU. Germany spends more than France. Germany spends about ten percent more than France on defense. Now, you can question whether it gets equal value for that for that spending, but Germany is already um, several billion euros uh, per year ahead of France in its defense spending. So it's a little bit hard for the you know for to to criticize them uh, too much when you, when you look at it in that comparative context. Um, and Germany will be over 50 billion euros in 2022. That's a 7% increase over just over last year. So there's a there's a positive story that the German side can tell uh, about this, even as um, we get to the second point, which is ambition. I think Germany needs to be able to show and Americans need to be able to, to, to point to the fact that Germany's defense ambitions are growing. Uh, so it's not just about spending more money, but it's about the role that Germany is ready to play, uh, the capability commitments it is willing to take on, and the leadership it is ready to demonstrate in the transatlantic alliance, and also in the European Union, by the way, um, in order to ensure that we have a, a fair sharing of the responsibilities for our collective defense. And, and I think there's, again, Catherine pointed out, and I want to come back to this too as my last point on this topic, that is the German parties have positioned themselves differently on this. The Greens reject 2% as a political you know, requirement, but they've left themselves open very constructively and pragmatically to doing whatever is necessary to ensure that Germany's armed forces are well-equipped and that Germany is able to meet its responsibilities, which is you know, which opens up a path to increasing defense spending, as long as you don't characterize it as, you know, some sort of a box checking exercise that Berlin has to go through in order to keep Washington happy. I think the Biden administration is well positioned to uh, to approach it that way. They already are. Um, but they're going to need to see this continued increasing commitment in order to uh, be able to sell that effectively within the American context and to other allies, I would say. Wonderful, really helpful and insightful responses to that. And I actually want to use burden sharing as our transition to a final topic, which is China. So, you know, part of the rationale of why the United States continues to 
put keep its foot on the gas on burden sharing is because it is in the US interest to have a more capable Europe in part so the United States can spend more time and resources in the Indo-Pacific and vis-a-vis -vis China, which has become you know, the number one priority for Washington. And so maybe if we can just spend some, you know, our final minutes of the podcast talking about where you think we are on the China conversation. You know, obviously it was a huge focus in NATO uh, with uh, in the EU also, um, you know, that was continued to be a major focus, especially with the launch of this new trade and technology council, which isn't obviously explicitly about China, but, you know, in large part will help the United States and Europe maintain its technological edge over China. So kind of with all of, and of course, then there's the US-EU-China Council, which started under Trump, but has continued under the Biden administration. I just want to get your thoughts on where we are on the China conversation, whether or not you're optimistic, you know, is the ground converging, I think, as so many people think it is. And one question to slip in there too, I thought it was really notable, um, Jeff, you talked about if it is Armin Laschet, and he is not such an ideologue, um, but is very, you know, maybe more focused on pragmatic steps. Do you have advice for the Biden administration and how they should be talking about China with Europe? Um, I think there's maybe some concerns that the, and the ideological frame, you know, with the competition between democracy and authoritarianism may not be the way to do it. And that instead the United States should be talking much more about the pragmatic steps, whether it's on export controls or investment screening or other things. So I don't, I, maybe you don't agree with that, but it would be useful to hear kind of A, where you think we are on the China discussion and B, advice for the Biden administration, given that you know this is their stated priority number one, how they should be talking about this issue with, with Germany and with Europe. Well, let me start with, as you said, where are where are we on China? I'm, I'm sure Catherine will have uh, have a lot to add to this. But if if I start, I would say, you know, you have a changing perception in Germany, as you do in other parts of Europe, of China's role, um, and and China is no longer seen as purely an economic opportunity with no downsides for Europe's. Um, you know, political arrangements and economic competitiveness. That has changed um, over the last several years. And you see it less in the current political leadership, um, for example, Chancellor Merkel um, and other members of her cabinet. But you really do see it in the kind of next generation of political leaders in practically in all the mainstream parties. Uh, that's something that I think has been remarkable, and it wouldn't be generally uh, observable unless you're following this stuff closely. But in, in all the parties, the Social Democrats, the Christian Democrats, the uh, liberal FDP, the Greens, um, you have, to a greater or lesser degree, a much more sober view of China taking hold. So that's, you know, if you if you're thinking about this from the point of view of the convergence of American and European um, interpretations, that is good. That is good news. Um, where and, and there's been a lot of progress in the last six months as the Biden administration working with its European counterparts has tried to reframe the China discussion um, and get it out of the kind of trade and tariff war. Um, uh, mold that it was in under the Trump administration. That's all good news. And the creation of the Trade and Technology Council is also good news. But in a way, uh, that was sort of the easy part. Uh, now is the hard part, because now you've got to decide 
um, what is the Trade and Technology Council going to do? You know, what the United States and Europe need to achieve is a, a, a an overarching understanding of how um, of how they want to deal with technology issues among themselves, so that they can then have a common front um, that they uh, put forth to uh, to the rest of the world. And and we're still pretty far apart in that. So there is there's also the danger. You know, it's it's great to have initiatives that come out of summits. You know, they are you know deliverables as as you know Jim and uh, Andrea will remember from times in government. You know, th- those are the lifeblood of of this kind of multilateral and bilateral diplomacy. the The challenge is sometimes you create more structures uh, and. Uh, you don't really have a path for those structures to deliver something concrete that is politically meaningful. And, and so that's the stage that that's the thing to avoid with the Trade and Technology Council. I think there's a need to identify two or three things, not 10 things, um, not 20 things, but two or three things that the United States and Europe can agree on in the next six months, let's say, and, uh, and, and start pushing forward. Maybe that's WTO reform, which you would best do with Japan. Um, maybe it is um, some other um, area of technological regulation, but that's what's needed. Um, and I think the Biden administration, if to get to your second, the second part of your question, which is kind of what's the, what's the advice? I think there are s- serious limits to putting everything in the democracies versus autocrat- autocracies framework. It's, it's helpful because of course, it's a reminder of the values that we all share. And, and at that level, nobody's gonna you know, dispute it. But I, I think we need to you know, talk about the competitiveness of our economies, um, the, the need for rules that um, you know, advance those values and not just uh, something that, that you know, if you if you take it too far, it starts to look like kind of a clash of civilizations, which nobody in Europe wants to sign up for, and it will repel rather than attract cooperation. Yeah, I think it, I'll I'll try to do it now in reverse order, so we um, like meet again at the beginning. Um, I think that particular point um, around the economics is salient, right? So um, you are never going to get to exact overlap between the United States and Germany specifically on China issues because of our economic systems and how they're structured, right? Um, That being said, right, there are now, you know, what are the dependency relationships that um, are evolving, right? So there's the, 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 the economic relationships, and then there are the economic dependencies. And that is clear for three sectors in uh, Germany. Um, That's machine building, that's obviously automotive uh, uh, issues, and then sort of the the gray areas in terms of industrial trade issues that are in between, um, that are sort of uh, pre-packaged products that go to China, et cetera. Now, you know, the people who have put their finger on how dangerous that this could become most vociferously and clearly is in fact um, the German Alliance, the Alliance of German Industry. They wrote a very highly read and now in this electoral campaign, um, fundamentally citable paper in 2019, which is to say that the pressure to change away, as Jeff noted, from this more mercantilist policy that Merkel has followed um, is actually coming from, you know, quote unquote, the industry floor. Because 
the machine builders are beginning to realize that you know China will soon be able to build those same same machines faster and quicker, and then that whole industrial piece will fall away. And I'm not not talking about you know 20, 25 years time. I'm talking about five or 10 years time, and that there's a significant danger um, if we if the German foreign policy elite continue with a mercantilist view, uh, you know, putting sort of economics first. So I do uh, I, I agree with Jeff that we're going to see a significant shift, but that Germany will continue, when this is frankly what I hope, I think this is healthy for um, Western diplomacy, uh, that Germany position itself as what I have described as a hinge power, so that it realizes when it can sequence uh, its economic relationships and use it to, um, because again, that relationship with China along those three core industry lines is a mutual dependency. It doesn't necessarily, you know, at least now. Uh, and so it's about giving the Germans an understanding that they can really begin to use that power. And they didn't fully play that card, I think, in the negotiation uh, of the CAI, of the Chinese Investment Agreement. Um, but they should be made aware of that power. And I do think that the Americans can make them aware of that. And if then that is sequenced, then that could be very smart diplomacy to kind of get the Chinese to have it our way. In the meantime, I absolutely agree that the smart approach uh, is on strengthening components from the inside. Uh, so to Jeff's point about WTO review, I think the main piece uh, or reform, the main piece on the Trade and Technology Council has to be to acknowledge where we have critical differences uh, in terms of our investment infrastructure. And that, you know, a lot of these things that could really make a tangible difference um, when we think of, you know, figuring out how the West might counter the Belt and Road initiatives is how much money this is gonna cost, right? We need to be very clear on what this is going to mean and begin to make that clear to our electorate so that that is carried. And I think in the American context, the you know us versus them narrative works quite well it works less so culturally for many different reasons in the german context but it's th these are the kind of things we need to talk about um and you know when we get to issues on digital sovereignty the europeans have to um, come to a more clear-eyed view in terms of what they can and can't do um, you know, just a side note, Gaia-X will only ever function uh, because Microsoft is in there and other, you know, we have to come to a much more clear-eyed uh, view on what it is we can really do, where we need the money and how it's going to come together. And then we need a, an effective way at pushing that back on our societies. And I'm not sure that that sort of narrative, we've really fully uh, arrived at that narrative clarity yet. Um, I do, you know, I'm excited about this, uh, uh, creating a firmer understanding within Germany and the country writ large of what a great opportunity this can be uh, to shape uh, a relationship between great superpowers and position itself as the essential, um, not go-between, but, you know, power in between that can, can really um, utilize its full uh, capacities here. Um, is Germany, is... Is the German population ready for this? Do they have a full understanding of this? No, not at all. Uh, that's part of my portfolio at the German Council on Foreign Relations to make sure that they get there. Um, but the but German industry certainly gets it. And they're starting to pressure uh, uh, German government elites in a different way. And this narrative has arrived, you know, other people, Neil Schmidt, the former, I mean, sorry, the, the foreign um, uh, policy speaker of the Social Democratic Party has written a very critical paper on China. They're starting to get it. But these next few years are absolutely critical 
Um, but we're never ever, for obvious reasons, going to get, you know, a, a, a significant or like, or, or a full overlap. We're, we'll, we'll have a significant overlap, absolutely, but not a full overlap of the American and, and, and German line. That's if great. I, I know Jeff, you want to jump in, but just it's such an important point, like that we don't need identical policies, but as long as they're complementary and coordinated, I think that's what we're working for. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Jeff. Yeah, and you know, every administration would like to take office with a clean slate, but that isn't the way it works. And and so the Biden administration inherited uh, not only the tariffs uh, on various uh, Chinese uh, sectors and products, but also the tariffs on aluminum and steel imports, which Europe. Europeans remain uh, deeply concerned about, uh, and and so um, you know there's been progress by the Biden administration to uh, you know neutralize the issue of the Boeing Airbus dispute, for example, uh, in the U.S. EU context. But uh, I think there is more that the Biden administration can do to demonstrate that you know Washington is willing to put aside um, uh, irritants in order to forge uh, a more effective um, uh, and more important uh, policy consensus toward, toward China. It, the Biden administration is already hinting in this direction by saying, well, we can deal with the 232 aluminum and steel tariffs in the context of some action that deals with the problem of, of global um, steel overcapacity, which is essentially a China problem. And uh, so if they're able to accomplish that in the next several months, as the ambition was articulated in the US-EU summit, then I think you'll have a much stronger case to make, um, uh, not only domestically, but to, in, in Europe to say, okay, we're willing to put those problems aside. Let's focus on the real issues out there. Yeah, and I, I mean, I get the sense that's where the administration is, and that, in my mind, was a large part of what the decisions to provide the waivers for Nord Stream 2 was, just recognizing how important the U.S.-Germany relationship is and how important that, you know, Germany is for the United States to execute on a lot of its priorities. So I'm also optimistic. I'll say I, I, I flip-flop in back and forth between a lot of optimism about where we're headed and then um, some concerns about, as you said, you know, can we make actual progress with the U.S. EU China Council? Will the Trade and Technology Council actually be able to produce results? So I, I find myself flip-flopping, but just to reiterate Catherine's point, I do think, you know, this is a tremendous opportunity and the next few years really are critical. And maybe people in Europe are getting tired of hearing Washington say, you know, how important it is to lock in progress under one of the most transatlantic presidents that we've had in a really long time. But it is an opportunity. And if we can't lock in some of these early steps now, I think I've said this multiple times on this podcast, I am concerned that the divergence begins to accelerate. And so it really is, you know, with the post-Merkel era, with a transatlantic president, can we have some early wins in that relationship and in US-EU relations so that we can um, get put this back on solid footing um, where and where it needs to be. So I know we're, we're, we're long on time. Um, so I'm gonna use that as an opportunity to close and just to thank both of you, Catherine and Jeff for joining us. It was a tremendous conversation. We just covered so much ground, Nord Stream 2, Russia, burden sharing, China, some of the Trade and Technology Council. Um, so it really was a tour de force. And um, I'm just thankful that you took the time to join us. So thank you. Thank you so much from this end too. It's uh, just a fabulous. Such a great pleasure to be with you both. We'll be watching closely on July 15th 
And I do think that the chancellor will go home with one message, which is to say that it is a German responsibility to have a democratic administration, small d, uh, in terms of the system, succeed in the United States, uh, lest it put into question all of our democratically led uh, systems. And that is a nonpartisan message that as a German American ca carrying two passports would be my ardent wish that that travels with her on the plane back to Berlin. Thank you both. Thank you, Jeff. Well, it's been a terrific uh, uh, honor for me to be with you. So thanks so much for, uh, for this discussion. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, talking again soon, I hope. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll see you soon.